You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey guys, welcome. Grab a seat. How y'all doing? Good. Uh, My name is Randall, one of the leaders here. And if you're joining us for the first time, first we just want to welcome you guys. We're glad that uh, you found yourself here today. And we would love it um, if you find a family here, if you find community here. And so I'm going to encourage you to um, hopefully meet some people. Maybe we'll reach out and, and get to know you guys. But if Hub City becomes your home, we'd be so excited for you. And in that, um, we are an imperfect community. Like, we don't have everything figured out. And what we want you to know is you are so more than welcome to come and belong in this community. Even if you don't believe what we believe, like you can belong and participate and be in this because it's an opportunity for us to love and serve um, you and, and glorify God. So, so welcome. We're glad that you're here. Second piece to that is um, we're kind of in the middle of this series through this guy, Peter, who was one of Jesus's closest friends and followers. And he wrote this letter, and he wrote this letter to uh, these newly formed communities or families or churches throughout Asia Minor. And the reason he's writing to them is to encourage them, to inspire them. Um, They will, if they already have not faced severe persecution. And so it's people that are coming to the knowledge of who Jesus is and following him and and making that declaration and confession for the very first time. And it has taken them um, from their communities. They're still there, right? But it's taken the very essence and core of who they are as they've come out of whatever belief system that they were in. Since the Roman Empire was so prolific, um, most of them would have been subjugated to that Roman Empire cult and worshiping the emperor. Um, But they've said, we found a better king. We found a better ruler in Jesus. And so we worship and follow him. And that, because of that, while physically that might not have rejected them or moved them out of their relationships, certainly it distanced them. It it, it created the space that you are holy and uniquely something different now. So Peter's writing them to encourage them. Like, how do you navigate this very tricky conversation? Jesus promised us that We'll be in this world, and the world will hate us because you follow and love me, right? And so that's what they're experiencing now, is you're just set up to have a world that is oppositional to Jesus and his followers, but you stay in this world for a great and grander purpose than yourself. And so Peter's writing to encourage everybody. So here's what he's done. In the first chapter that we've seen, he's, he's, he's done this. He's like, I want you to begin to to, as his readers, to, to think rightly about God. Here's some right things to believe about God, how you process who God is and who God is in Jesus and who God is in his spirit. And then he, he says that's going to inform basically right beliefs about who you are now in Christ. Um, and all of those right beliefs about God and right beliefs about who you are in Christ, that's going to actually inform how you conduct yourselves in this world. And so our hope and our prayer is that our time together in 1 Peter, just like it was for those original readers, although the context is so different, like it is so easy to read this through a Western American lens and land on very wrong conclusions about what Peter is trying to do here. We are not an oppressed group in this country. We're not persecuted in this country. Now, people are persecuted for following Jesus 
throughout the globe, just not necessarily true of us. So we can't read it through that lens and we'll, we'll end up in, a, in, a, in really like a harmful different place. So we have to try to understand the context and culture that Peter's writing to. Um, but we do hope that it will encourage you and inspire you. But here's the deal. Before we get to that encouraging and inspiring, especially for the next couple of weeks, we're going to do a little perspiring together, right? Because, man, today's a good word, but it's a difficult word. Our original plan was to put... Um, the, the, the next two sermons I'm going to preach, we're going to just be one. But as I got to it, I was like, we have to get today. We have to get what Peter's saying today in order to get what we're going to look at next week. And it's tough and challenging because here's the deal. Over the next couple of weeks, we get to talk about our relationship to government. So that should be easy, right? We get to talk about the relationship between slaves and masters, husbands and wives, right? Like, I could probably just walk up here with a big target on my chest, right, because of these sermons. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in. I'm going to pray one more time and ask God to be here and be present with us this morning, and then we're going to jump in. Father, uh, once again, we just come to you humbly in prayer. We ask that you would guide our thoughts and our hearts and our minds, that your Holy Spirit would convict us today and compel us to life and beauty and worship of you. That's what it is about, is our, our lives, every aspect of our lives is aligned more and more with you as our good and righteous king. That's what worship is. Worship is about all of life following you and loving you and ascribing glory and value and worth to our good God. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So Peter's calling his readers to recognize first and foremost, that they are living, like if you just track with what he's done, they are now living in, in, in a place that, that they feel foreign to, like they feel like aliens to. So you're living in this place that now has different values and practices than those appropriate for the people of God in his holy nation. So to live rightly in such a place, the apostle gives his readers like these two big like principles of engagement. First, he's saying that their allegiance to God and Christ does not exempt them from submitting to human authority. That's the first one that's hard and challenging probably for some of us. But then two, that they must maintain their identity as God's holy people and consequently be prepared to suffer unjustly without, ready for it, without retaliation, without seeking vengeance, without seeking revenge right? For, for holding to their convictions and values as they follow Jesus. See, our natural tendency would be either to resist and to fight back against the unjust oppression with both words and actions, or to retreat and go silent and become this like cloistered group of believers. But Peter gives us these several ex exhortations in this passage today. Um, and, and by the way, we're not actually going to look at the verses that Jesse read, but I just need you to look at them in your heart today. We're going we're gonna to tie those into next week, but they certainly tie in today, okay? So um, we're going to see Peter exhorting or challenging his readers, right? That's where we're going to pick this up. So let's look at the first couple of verses, and then we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. We're really, all of our time this morning is going to be, I think it's verse 16, we're going to hover around. So he starts off in, in today's passage, he says, beloved, I urge you, right? So he's giving you a title right? You're, you're suffering injustice. You're suffering oppression. And what I want you to know is that you are beloved 
by your heavenly father. I urge you as sojourners, as exiles. So he roots them once again in this identity that he's building out from them. And out of that identity as sojourners or, or, or exiles to then abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation, right? So he reminds them of their exilic status and nature as followers of Jesus. And then he says, you have to abstain then because, because out of that nature, out of that identity, then you'll abstain from passions and desires to distance yourselves from the things that are fleeting and sinful. And Peter wants his readers to, to see that their conduct, the way that they behave because of how they believe, as long as it's honorable, even, even when others are like, tr- like talking trash about you, they're slandering you, they're maligning you, they're accusing you, they're mistreating you. The way that you conduct yourselves, and as he'll say later in, in some of these verses, it, it actually might silence them from that oppressive talk, but more than that, they'll look at how you respond to how they're treating you, and they'll see your honorable conduct, and they might actually get on board with God. They might actually glorify God because of that. And so then he launches into this next section. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, I can see some of you like squirming in your chairs already. Like, what does that mean? I don't like submission. I don't like human institutions. I have a great distrust for them. I, I get all of it, right? He says, whether that be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise good. We're going to circle back to this conversation next week. That's not the conversation for today, but you need to see that. He says, honor the emperor. Well, who's the emperor? Like, more than likely, who Peter is telling them to honor, not, not worship, Like everybody else was supposed to worship this emperor as king, as God, right? But at least honor them. Well, who's he talking about? More than likely, he's talking about this guy named Nero, right? Now, if you know anything about the emperor Nero, he's crazy, right? So um, like this is conspiracy theory 101, but more than likely when Rome burned, it was because of the emperor, right? And so so most historians believe that, that he was responsible for the burning of the city of Rome because there's just too many inconsistencies. Like they'd put out a fire here, but then all the way across the city, another fire would start. And there was just no, like I'm not a fire guy. Um, I don't know a ton about it, but I just don't think it could spread that far that quickly, right? And so most people believe that, that he had his people actually setting Rome on fire, but then did he take ownership for it? No, guess who he blamed? He, he blamed this like small ragtag group of people in the city of Rome that, that were rejecting him as God and, and declaring this guy Jesus to be God, right? Eventually, he'd get around to, to grabbing some of those people in the city of Rome and saying, you'd make good food for lions, right? Or, or, or maybe you could help to illuminate the parties in, in the, the emperor's court that I'm throwing in the most horrific way possible. Like, you will be the torch, right? And so that's the guy that Peter is saying, still, still, honor the, still honor him, right? The guy who at every turn has abused and maligned you, tortured you for sport, that guy, honor him. And it's, 
things like that that make this passage so difficult, right? Because it's also what makes it encouraging and inspiring. And what we, what we need to see is that, that they're not mere suggestions from Peter. Rather, they are commands from God, and they confront us at every single level of who we are. Submission doesn't settle well in our American culture and sensibilities of independence and freedom and autonomy. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at how God wants his people to conduct themselves in a culture that's hostile to them and to the human institutions and authorities that are over us. And what we're going to see is that the gospel places a radical call on our lives in our relationships, and they fly in the face of really any cultural conventions, right? Not just in our day, but also for Peter's original readers. Why? Because the gospel has radically transformed and changed us, and it gives us a new construct to view and interact with the world around us. But here's what's so important to this conversation. However you view your relationship to God, how do you view that you have a relationship with God? That's going to guide every single relationship that you have to this world, whether it's your political leaders, your spouse, your employer, your friends, whatever, right? Your relationship with God and how you fundamentally view that at its most basic level, that's going to inform how you conduct yourselves in every other relationship. And the question we have to wrestle with is, if that's true, then how am I actually supposed to relate to God. Like, what kind of relationship do I have to God? Is it like an employer and an employee? Is it like a parent or a child? Probably most oftenly, our relationship looks like that. Like, we mess up, right? And we resist God's discipline, right? Or is it like a marriage? Or is it like a friendship, right? Like, certainly, those can apply in like certain aspects. But again, how we primarily understand our relationship to God will determine and govern our relationship to everything and everyone else. And the Bible actually uses all sorts of metaphors to describe this relationship that we have to Jesus. They're all beautiful. It says that we're new creations in Christ. We're free to act in a way in this new ethic of, of, of love, right? Uh, love for our creator, love for the things that he's created. It, it says that we're adopted children, that we're co-heirs, that we are sheep in a flock of a true and better shepherd. We are branches of this beautiful vine that gives us life. We are members of Jesus's body, um, that we're even friends with Jesus. And each of these are good and encouraging metaphors and are rich with theology. And, and they're in their own way, they combine to paint, I think, this beautiful and robust imagery that envisions the complex relationship that we have to God. But this morning, we're going to focus in on how Peter wants us to understand how we are to relate to God, and it's incredibly uncomfortable, which in turn affects how we relate to the world. So verse 16, and this is it. We're going to hone in on this, really. Live as people who are free. How many of you like that? How many of you are stoked on that, right? How much has freedom been a part of our conversation over the past two years, right? So we're like, yeah, I can do that. I love that, right? Even, even through our cultural lens, that starts to spark up like, yeah, we love to be free. So not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, though, but as living servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So, so we're just going to camp out here for the rest of our times this morning, really. So the part that we love is Peter declaring that we are indeed a free people. And listen, while certainly like the country that we live in has a unique perspective on freedom and does provide much freedom, I'm more than confident that what Peter has in mind here is not the same concept that we view freedom as through our cultural lens. So what does he mean that we are to live as a free people, free in Christ? Well, let's, let's begin by 
talking about the inverse of that. Like, what does it mean to not be free in Christ? And I think in defining that, it helps to define what Peter means here. So, um, because the reality is this, apart from faith and trusting in Jesus, freedom is fleeting. The, the Bible clearly states that we are born into a state of sin. It, has, it is what has infected the human race and has been passed down through generation after generation. Adam's failure is our curse. And sin does not equal freedom or life. It always equal, equals bondage and death. All throughout the scriptures, the language used to describe image bearers that are living apart from God's redemptive plan in Christ is anything but free. It speaks of our natural sinful condition as oppressive, as fracturing us. It enslaves us, and it tells us what sin does to us. It causes us to be enslaved to this obsession with self. Like, I can't think of any better definition of sin than, than we're obsessed with self and reject God's good plan for us. It causes us to be blind to the beauty and truth of the things of God. Bondage to unrighteousness in belief and behavior results in us being depraved to our very core, tainted with sin, and we come up short of God's glory with our efforts every time. It doesn't free us to find life. It forces us to fail to avoid death. Death of life, relationships, hope, truth, good, justice, and ultimately the complete death of us. But Peter, as he states here, your new status as a follower of Jesus is now freedom, free from all of that. Why? Well, as Paul tells us in Galatians 5, he says, freedom, or for freedom, Christ has set us free right? So, so Christ did what he did to set us free. The prophet Isaiah declares that the Messiah's purpose is to proclaim liberty and freedom to the captives. Now, now Jesus didn't show up and actually physically free any cap. I mean, he didn't even free his, his cousin John, right? So, so what's he talking Like, is he talking about like Jesus went to jails and freed people? That's not the point. Like Isaiah and Paul had a particular sense of freedom in mind here to set them free spiritually from the enslavement of sin. So, so what does is, what is Jesus then set us free from? Well, from the reality of the sin of self. He sets you free from guilt and shame, condemnation and bondage. He sets you free from the seeking of approval of other humans. He sets you free from your old nature that was bound to Adam, and he makes you a new creation in him, setting you free from the power and persuasion of sin and what it once held over you. He sets us free from our futile pursuit of self-righteousness. He sets you free from the power of the enemy and death. So Peter says, live free. You're free in Christ. You're free from all of these things. You, as a people newly formed through Christ, are free. But that freedom comes with a warning from Peter. He says, it's possible for you to live in such a way that either takes that freedom for granted and abuses that freedom, or you use your freedom in a way that you actually begin to abuse and oppress others. And that's not freedom. Paul says the same thing in this passage back in Galatians 5. Look at verse 13. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
So our freedom in Christ does not free us to pursue our fleshly passions and desires. It actually frees us to love and serve one another. So both Peter and Paul are saying that there's a way that you can view your freedom in Christ that will create this life in you that is actually not freedom, right? Like like you're not free to use your freedom in Christ in a way that harms others, that doesn't account for the needs and best interest of those around you. Your freedom is not connected to serving yourself. It's deeply rooted in a selfless sense of service that elevates and lifts others up, serving them. Because look at what Paul goes on to say, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's connecting that conversation to freedom to this. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So you're free to actually live out the law and serve your neighbor as you would serve yourself. So using your freedom in Christ to serve yourself and devour and destroy is no freedom at all. You're free to serve and love others. To serve and love your neighbor is a selfless way and a Christ-like way. Since your freedom in Christ frees you from your relentless pursuit of serving yourself and your own interests, it frees you to think of others and their needs and, and ways to best serve them. You're free now in Christ to live in a way that your conduct and actions don't serve the passions of your flesh, but in love serves others. Now, I was trying to think of illustrations of like how to talk. They're all so divisive, right? And that's the hard thing. But just ask yourself, like any of those things that you would come in contact with, right? And, and anything that there's going to be some gray area in these conversations around, is your view of your freedom that you have in Christ self-serving or other-serving? If it's self-serving, it's not freedom. If you say like, I know that I'm free to do this thing. I have ultimate freedom in Christ to enjoy and experience this thing. But if it's self-serving and it doesn't account for whatever else is happening in somebody else, that's not the freedom that Peter's talking about here. And, and so why these stern warnings from both Paul and Peter? Because, man, just like the readers of these letters were prone to fall back into like culturally comfortable places that are safe, so are we. Like, we'll use our freedom to serve ourselves. We'll abuse our freedom, and we'll use it as an opportunity to serve our flesh or to cover up evil. So, so, so what does that mean? Well, I believe that Scripture reveals it's when we excuse, dismiss, or even justify our sin instead of confessing it and repenting of it. It's excusing it in a way that it doesn't matter how we live well, because, well, we're covered by grace, right? So, so what do we do and how it affects us and, and, and those around us? Well, it, it simply doesn't matter. But by that, we're actually cheapening the grace of God by ignoring our sinful tendencies and excusing them or justifying them in a way, especially if they're harming others. We're cheapening the grace that God has bestowed upon us because as much as we're told about the beautiful and transformative grace of God, we're called to confess and repent and turn from our sin. Paul devotes chapters in Romans to this, like five and six and seven. He beautifully walks through our relationship to sin, and it's anything but embrace it through your freedom. It's, re- it's, it's fight it off. It's rejected at every turn because you're, you're not free to serve yourself. You're free to love God and to serve others. So it's when we say that I'm, I'm not just free from sin, right? But that somehow I'm now free to sin. 
right, indiscriminately because of grace. It always covers me on the back end. Well, that devalues God's grace, and it it puts us in jeopardy. It's called cheap grace because it doesn't take into account the pricely reality of what freeing us from its grips cost God and Jesus. It's the most expensive thing ever purchased in the history of the universe. Listen, I was trying to find some examples. I was on YouTube the other night of costly things in our reality, right? And so I, I watched this video of, uh, it was like a realtor video. I don't know how I got even on the algorithm of that, right? But it was this like 6,000 square foot condo on a, the 78th floor of a building in Manhattan's like Tribeca district, right? But guess how much the sticker was? Like, I'll say the number, it was 40. But in either way, it's crazy, right? Because that's not 40K. Like, keep going up. Like, $40 million for a 6,000 square foot. That's, un- that's unreal, right? Like, we have things in our, in our life that have value in me. Like, another one, I was thinking, like, you guys know anything about this album called Once Upon a Time in Shaolin? Well, here's what it is. It's the seventh studio album from this group called the Wu-Tang Clan. There's only one single copy that was ever produced, made, and sold. Originally in 2015, it was sold for $2 million. It's a, it's a, it's a CD, a compact disc. Some of y'all don't even know what that is, right? You're like, I don't, what do you, how do you put that into your iPod or your iPhone? That doesn't make sense. How do you play that, right? Today, to this day, it is still the most expensive work of music ever sold. A group, uh, 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 like a corporate group, just bought it for $4 million for one CD, right? So, like, we get it. Like, we understand things that are pricey. Like, like that, that stuff costs a lot. Like, it costs, like, maybe 10 cents to make a CD, right? But, but Jesus' sacrifice to redeem us from the prison of sin and freedom to live an abundant life is immeasurable compared to anything in this world. And when we live in a way that we leverage our freedom in Christ to serve our self-interest, we create cheap grace. The term, of course, can be sourced to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes in his titular work, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, cheap Grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So you see, grace frees us from our performance, our fear of failure. It frees us from that pursuit of self-interest because we know that that God planned for it. He saw everything that we would do, and he still gave the world Jesus, and it cost him everything. So, so however, it doesn't free us, though, from fearing God, a reverence to the Holy One. It, it frees us from the debt of sin, but it doesn't free us from a life to be lived for him. It frees us to live for him. The call of salvation is the call to receive the free gift of God in your life. And grace says this. It says, I know how sinful you are. I know how far from me you are. I know how obsessed with yourself that you are. I know how rebellious you are. I know how you're prone to wander. I know the depths you're willing to sink just to serve the passions of your flesh. But nonetheless, you're invited through grace to come and have a place in my kingdom at my table and have fellowship with me once again to walk and talk with me as we once did in the garden and not feel shame or not feel guilt to be nothing but naked before your creator an invitation to feel the warmth and love of your savior 
And as Peter stated way back in verse 15 of chapter 1, it's a call to be holy as the one who sets you free is holy, set apart, and distinct. Freedom in Christ simply doesn't imply freedom to live however you want. Because the freedom you have in Christ, as Peter makes it so abundantly clear in verse 16, makes you free to live as a servant of God. So this is where it's going to get a little sweaty for us here. Because this is, I mean, if it hasn't already, right? <laughs> because this is where we got to put in a little bit of difficult work, right? And I've been struggling through this. I mean, I've been sweating this all week, and now it's your turn. Now you got to deal with this. So this word that's translated servant here, right? It's a really interesting word. The Greek word appears throughout the New Testament about 130 times. In the New Testament, when you see that word servant or bondservant, Paul uses it of himself. James uses it of himself. It's described, and Peter actually will go on to use it here in a little bit about himself. It's used to describe Jesus also in Philippians 2. It's the same word that Paul uses. It's this Greek word doulios, right? And it means one is who, one who is subservient to and at the disposal of his master. Here's the deal. There's, there's no other way to cut it. It means slave, right? So, so Peter seems to be saying here that our relationship to God has to be seen in these terms, as a slave to God, living as a slave to him who set you free. Like for most of us, minimally, that's uncomfortable on multiple levels, if not outright offensive, right? Even if we set aside our cultural sensitivity, which is rightly placed to the term slave and slavery. It's just so confrontive to say that you've been set free to be enslaved, right? You're free, but you have a master. It doesn't make any sense in some ways. Well, we're going to address this next week, right? So, so come back next week. Um, and, then, and then this, like, don't assume that we're just going to try to skirt this very uncomfortable conversation. It's going to come up more next week. I'm just asking for you today to try to set aside that conversation for the sake of this one today. I'll say this though, right? I think it's easy to make a lot of differences between. So you'll find the Bible addressing this form of slavery, most commonly called chattel slavery, which is, which is distinct and different to one degree than this doulios or bond servant. But here's what we need to understand in that conversation. Like either way, the person, even if they're become a bond servant, they're still enslaved right? They still don't have control, right? So either way, we have to address whether it's chattel slavery or this idea of like bond servanthood or doulios. Either way, something is still so broken in the system that forces somebody to enslave themselves to that system, right? So it's clear that Peter wants us to know, despite his great declaration that his readers are now a free people, right? But they are primarily to relate to God as a slave and he is their master, so you're a free people, but it, it, it looks different than, than what we think about with freedom. So my guess is, and, and even all cultural, historical connotations aside, which is incredibly difficult to do, we're going to deal with a little bit more of that next week, um, right? So, so while it may seem like maybe we're like, like this is just off-putting or like counterintuitive or like it's even offensive to think about being a slave to Jesus, it shouldn't be, considering how many times in the gospel we're called to think about Jesus as Lord, which is translated master, right? It implies 
a position of servitude when we declare Jesus to be Lord, and giving oneself and rights away to something far greater than yourself. The New Testament writers use the word Lord for Jesus like over 600 times in their letters, and it's always about Jesus. They use the word Savior only 24 times. And, And while he is most certainly both, yes, he saves you, but he is also master and Lord over you. So that's what the authors of the New Testament wants us to see. So when we confess Jesus as Lord, which if you haven't, man, I hope that you will, um, if you have, you're saying that Jesus, you have mastery over me, over me. I'm not my own. I belong now to you. My identity is formed in you. I give my rights to you. I give my freedom to you. I give my life to you. So one, for our Western modern sensibilities, the term Lord just doesn't have the same like weight to it today, right? Certainly would have had more weight to Peter's readers, um, but, but that word master like that's a little cringy for us, right? That's a little hard for us. Lord doesn't carry the same cultural connotations, but you start thinking about that word master. Something has mastery over me, or I'm, I'm, I'm willing to submit myself to this thing. This is not normal language to use when we're referring to our relationship to Jesus. Like we'd, I can't think of a worship song where we're like, God, you're a good master, right? We, we declare him as Lord often, right? But, but rarely do we do that. We, we've lost this incredibly important concept of Jesus as Lord, and I am his slave. We have a man-centered emphasis in the church. We have a man-centered theology that dominates evangelicalism. But Jesus isn't your buddy, like, who, who wants to give you everything that you want and satisfy your deepest cravings. That's, that's never been what the New Testament teaches. Jesus doesn't wait for a summons from you, like you ring a bell, and then he shows up. He's like, oh, what do, you, what do you need, right? He doesn't serve every whim and need. He's your Lord. You're not his. So, so while it might be a foreign concept to us, and even an offensive one, if we look at it through the historical lens, and it should be, it wasn't to Peter or Paul or James. The apostle and early disciples counted the cost of discipleship, of following Jesus, and they entrusted themselves not simply only to following Jesus where he went, but to serving him and others as their master. So Peter taps into this very unfortunate but culturally relevant imagery of master and slave, but powerful nonetheless. And we need to like dislocate, not in the real world, right? I'll say it today, I'll say it next week, enslaving and subjugating fellow image bearers is sinful, it's abhorrent to God, it's a violation of his good intention for humans and their flourishing, and where it exists, we should seek to undo it, okay? So, so while it may not play well for us, kind of in our humanly understanding of this, we have to suspend some of the real world implications just for our understanding of this, to see the point that Peter is making, right? Right? How does it help us to understand our relationship to Jesus as Lord? Well, this imagery reveals to us that our lives are no longer defined by our sinful passions and desires. We are no longer slaves to sin. So when we confess Jesus as Lord, purchased by the precious blood of God's holy lamb, I'm declaring to Jesus to be sovereign over my life, over my death, 
and everything else in between. And we have to understand and submit to that if we're going to understand at all anything that Peter is going to tell us about our life in Christ over these next few passages. Because, because when we do, it changes our attitude and our understanding of authority, which we, we wrestle with. We're going to wrestle with. And, and how we are to conduct ourselves whether that authority is good or bad, whether that authority is loving or abusive, Jesus is going to call us, as we'll see next week, into a very interesting relationship to those authorities. So, here's the deal. If Jesus is our ultimate authority, then that guides how we respond to these human authorities. And we're going to add more to that next week, but for now, you just have to sit in the uncomfortable thought of that for the next week. And I, and I want you to. But I also want you to look at the passage that Jesse read at the beginning, because that's what's going to tie this thing together. We're not even touching it today. We're going to look at it next week. But keep that passage in mind. As you ponder the uncomfortable reality of what Peter's saying here, hold on to those verses that Jesse read at the beginning. They're in the passage for next week. So remind yourself this week, as you wrestle through the implications of this, that to accept the call of the gospel over your life is to submit yourself to a good and gracious master, a righteous and compassionate king. And that should cause us to worship King Jesus because he's nothing like our old master. In Romans 6, Paul reminds us that our old master is sin, that we're enslaved to it, and it was a cruel and deadly master, always over-promising and under-delivering, incapable of bringing life and flourishing. Sin's great payday is death. Spiritually, physically separated from God, Satan and sin, they promise life but they kill everything. They tempt us to be our own masters, but in the end, we only become enslaved to those idols and false gods of self. Peter wants his readers and us to see that Jesus is just different. He's a different kind of master, one who leads with love and, and kindness, whose yoke is easy, who frees his subjects from the, per, the futile, sinful pursuit of self and delivers them to life and freedom. But even more, we become subjects of a good king who entered our slavery to sin and redeemed us with his own sacrifice and blood. He became a slave himself. Paul tells us as much in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself and became like a slave. He humbled himself. He pursued no selfish ambition or desire. Rather, he sought only to obey his father. And in that, he purchased our deliverance and freedom. And that freedom binds us now to our calling. We are free in bondage to God. We know what it means to fear God in his presence. We are free to love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ in the most selfless ways. We see that the dark blindness of sinful selfishness is now gone, and we are free to love. We are free to honor, love, and so serve those that are not yet following Jesus in our city. We are free to be respectful to the role of authority over us. If we're going to understand what we have to walk through next week, we have to get this. 
So my heart and my desire as we wrap up our time is that we would make a right response to this good and gracious and loving master who we are now free to be enslaved to, King Jesus. So what do we do? Well, we, we worship. We worship with all of our lives aligning. Now, that's not going to happen today, right? That's a lifetime of us releasing those pursuits of sinful, selfish behavior and saying, God, today I want to be more free to love you, more free to serve others, more free to fulfill this great purpose. What does Peter say? As you conduct yourselves in this way, here's what might actually happen. Others may see that. They may actually glorify God and experience this beautiful freedom of declaring Jesus our great and wonderful and beautiful master who loves us, who gave all for us. So let's worship. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to sing. We're going to sing our hearts out to this good and glorious God. Um, I would ask that you take some time during this to just talk with God, just simply communicate through prayer with God. Um, if Hub City is your home, we believe that you can worship God today by freely giving back to God what is His, and so we would ask that you would give. You can do that in a few ways. Uh, we got a box on the way out that you can slide uh, that money into. Um, you can give online today. And then finally, we come before God and we get to go to the table. Here's how we do this currently at Hub City. We're going to have the elements set up over there, and we get to go to the table of grace and receive this abundant grace that Jesus pours out on us. And in that, as we take that bread, which represents Jesus's body that was shattered and broken for us, was it costly? Yes. We take that cup and we see that, and we see Jesus as he's sitting with his friends and followers with a piece of bread in his hand and a piece of, or a glass of wine in the other. He says, this now represents my blood, which was poured out from you, costly. Yes. Grace. Absolutely. So go to the table. That's why we never say you got to go to the table and take communion because that implies that somehow you're wrestling it away and it's not that. It's a free gift of grace given to us. And so we get to go and receive that grace. And in that, we are saying this good and loving king who gave it all, left nothing for us to guess put it all out there and said, I am going to give it all for you so that you can be free to love and worship me.